Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today is a sales expert, podcast host, keynote speaker, and published author with over 10 years of experience working in the industry. He has always been passionate about the process and impact that comes with selling. During his time working at Mindvalley, he gained a new perspective on sales and realized that all selling comes from a place of love. To that extent, he decided to combine all his years of experience and research into his new book titled How to Sell with Love, which centers around five key elements that are crucial in order to be successful and fulfilled in your sales career. He's also the host of Mindvalley's Superhumans at Work podcast, where he interviews some of the top performers in the world about how to be extraordinary human beings in the workplace. During this episode, we discuss his career experience working in sales and the impact of selling with love. He shares with us his journey as a podcast host, and we talk about the importance of finding your why in order to deliver real value to others. His ability to take bold risks have played a huge role in his growth both professionally and personally and have been key factors in his success. His mission of changing the people's perspective around sales and selling from a place of love is something I truly admire. And the last message he wanted to share with us is to sell from a place of love because when you do that, you will find yourself feeling better, being more abundant and making the world a better place. Please welcome to the show, the incredible Mr. Jason Mark Campbell. Hey man, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, so Jason, me and you connected through your colleague, Marta, uh, who's also a part of Mindvalley. I had the pleasure of recently having her on the podcast. And she told me that actually you were the host of the Mindvalley podcast, which I've been following for quite a while. So I'm like, oh, wow, this would be amazing to speak to someone in the same kind of field. And I know you also have a background in sales, which I do as well. So I thought I'd love to talk to you about some points, you know, with the podcast and with selling. But before we get into all that, Jason, why don't you give all of us a background about yourself and we'll take it from there. Yeah, man. So my name is Jason Mark Campbell. And, uh, you know, for most people who might have been connected with Mindvalley before, uh, I've worked there for seven years, which was a personal growth online education company, um, had quite an amazing time there. I came with a background that was very heavy into marketing and sales. And I jumped into this organization where we got to market and sell products that actually changes people's lives for incredible results. So it's quite motivating, quite um, enthusiastic being able to step into that workplace and using your sales and marketing skills to really push humanity forward. Um, so I did that for about seven years. What I'm doing today now is actually I'm still working in partnership with Mindvalley. And I'll just add a few details that the podcast I host with Mindvalley is called Superhumans at Work, which is actually a secondary podcast which focuses on how to be an extraordinary human being in the workplace, where I also get to interview people that have written books around productivity, sales, communication, leadership, um, and really what truly makes you a superhuman in the workplace. So very blessed to be able to do that today. And I'm also working on my own book now, which is How to Sell with Love. And so most people laugh at that title or at least become a little confused. But I reassure them that if you actually add love to the sales process, it's what unlocks extraordinary performance and really makes people be aligned with putting all their energy into making things happen. Yeah. And <clears throat> let's and let's just dive straight into the, the whole selling with love, because even when I was uh, doing my research, that is not... I guess the typical thing that you hear about sales, you know, to sell with love sales from my, my experience as well is very target focused. It's very numbers focused. You don't really uh, focus on the client, but you said uh, in your talk back at AFEST that there's three keys to selling. So love yourself to love the client and to love the product. Now, first of all, let's, let's start with the loving yourself part. Why is that such a crucial process in, in selling? Why do we have to love ourselves first before we start trying to sell to other people? That, that's a powerful question. It's interesting because that's usually the punchline of my talks where I actually talk about the self-love being really that secret ingredient that you got to work on because most people that have a problem with hitting targets, maybe you're not hitting your quota, maybe you're just not feeling motivated about the current product you're selling. Thinking that self-love is the solution is usually not the first thing you think about, yet it, it has so much to do with it, you know? Um, so when I talk about self-love, what happens is people that have resistance in sales usually comes from a fear. And it can come from various types of fears. It can come from a place of shame. And it was really interesting. I had a conversation uh, with an individual that I interviewed. Her name was Teal Swan. And I really love the way that she defined what shame is. And shame is that there's a part of yourself that you don't accept. And so if somebody's having issues with selling and you decide to label selling as something evil, something that's terrible, something that's you're manipulating people, right? 
most people on the planet don't want to be a terrible manipulating person. And if you do, well, maybe you should work on that as well. But <laughs> I would say for the majority of the listeners here, you're probably looking to do good in the world. And if you've actually embedded a thought that you being a salesperson makes you a terrible or manipulative person, there's a part of you that you're going to reject. There's going to be some shame around you being a salesperson. And, you know, the first part of my book is actually all about how to deal with these, what I call SGBs, shame and guilt blockages. Because if you're stepping into a sales scenario and you're like, oh my God, I need to be that used car salesman again. Like maybe that's the cartoon image you have of sales in your head. And if that's the case, then every time you sell, there's a part of you that you want. It's like you have to do it because you need the money, but then you're resisting it. There's energy, there's friction, and it's not going to be what allows you to be a top-level salesperson. It's like hitting the brake and the gas at the same time. And so while that was defined like that, this is one of the first things that blocks people from being excellent at sales, and it comes from that place of self-love. And of course, if you have self-love, you're not going to want to do the things that you don't identify with. So there's a healing process to be done there. And if we talk about the fear aspect, this is where it's all about like the fear of rejection or, you know, whenever you're going on a sales call, what if they say no? We don't like being told no. You know, when someone says no to us, we feel like it's a personal attack. And so when I talk about loving yourself, you talk about wanting to do your best is really the answer that I want to give as an antidote for people is that no matter where you are within your sales career entrepreneurial career where you are in life this is a this is a motto that i really like to drill down which comes from don miguel luis who wrote a book called uh, mastery of love as well as the four agreements and in the four agreements one of those agreements is do your best that's all you ever do and so love yourself comes from a place that you're always doing your best and if you know you're always doing your best then there's nothing that you're doing which is considered not enough i know you're a big fan of marissa peer as well and this is one of the key things she speaks about one of the biggest plagues of humanity is people feel like we're not enough so even in a position of sales if you feel like you're not enough it's it's already going to put a uh, you know a roadblock before you get started so no matter where you start Every day you do anything is your best. And if you start with that love perspective for yourself, you can really go out and apply the methodologies that I speak about how to unleash the love in the sales process. Yeah, I think that's really profound to look at sales from starting starting with yourself because sales from my experience and I think from a lot of people, it's very, it's outward. You know, how do I sell the client? It's all focused on them rather than focusing on myself. And like you correctly said, the whole concept of I'm not enough is something I've experienced in the past myself. I went to therapy for it and, you know, obviously with Marissa's work has helped me a lot as well. But I remember when I was selling, I could I could really relate to what you're talking about because I did have that fear of rejection. Okay, over time, because you have to make 100 like cold calls a day, you get over that rejection. So nobody becomes like, yeah, okay, it's another no, it's fine. But the I think the I think the fear and the disconnect that you're talking about is something that I don't think a lot of people consider that disconnect between I don't feel good selling this this product. So let's say we we can let's say we focus on the self-love part and now we we do get over that and we do love ourselves and we do get over that fear. What happens then when you don't love the product? Because I looked at one thing in sales for me was I loved selling. I love the process of I love the psychology behind selling. I liked talking to people. I like connecting with people. I loved all that, but what I didn't like is at, in certain companies that I didn't like the product I was selling that like I'm like I'm selling something but I don't I know this product has benefits for your business or for whatever you're trying to do but I didn't feel that I was selling something that was fulfilling me so what what would you say to what would you say to that when you think you're selling something but you don't have that fulfillment that you're looking for that's, that's a really important question and you know it's funny because you mentioned earlier that there was the three loves of selling you talked about the product the client and the love I've actually changed my fame framework since ever I did that talk because I realized that loving the product is only one of the aspects you actually have to drill a little further because sometimes just sometimes you have to sell a product that you don't personally love but the difference it makes in the client's lives actually is important and you might love that more than the product and that might be the key that you're missing to allow you to be enthusiastic about selling that product even if you don't personally love it and so this was really interesting i was having a conversation a gentleman's named tucker max and he wrote a series of funny books when he was in his young uh, 20s i guess and then he now runs a company where he helps people publish books and he's been a mentor to me on writing the book and he, he's very fascinating because he invests in companies regularly as a venture capitalist or an angel investor and when he sees people come up 
up to him, like entrepreneurs, right, that are in love with their product. Like they're just like, my our product is the best thing you need to, yeah, you need to invest with us. This is going to be a product that really changes everything. This is the solution to the market. And he, he, he calls that a red flag. He actually sees that as a negative. He says when people are just in love with a product, they're going to be too attached. And then if something changes in the marketplace, they're not going to be willing to adapt. And so that's a very interesting caveat because you can love the product, but if it's your first love, it's actually a red flag because beyond loving the product, there's a love that has to come before that, which is why I had to rewrite this framework into something that I think just hits the nail on the head. The first love in selling, the first one you want to go into is loving the impact because when you love the impact, you're there to solve problems. And when you're there to solve problems, now you can actually approach it in a way that if the product is not something that you're particularly passionate about, but you know that for the client, it will definitely make the impact and solve their problems in a way that will leave them so happy that they decided to do business with you, you will not feel hesitancy around wanting to sell that product. Like, I'll give you an example. There's one of my friends who does an agency where he does backlinks, search engine optimization, all that internet marketing stuff. I don't love the product. I don't care too much about it, but I understand its impact. I realize that when people apply this, they can really go in and they can make a transformation on how they rank on Google. They can get the right traffic to discover the solution of the problems that they provide by implementing this strategy. And he's asking me if I can go out and sell this to companies. I know nothing of the product. I know all the impact of the product. And oftentimes that's all I need to focus on to get excited about talking to companies and tell them, hey, guess what? I don't fully understand exactly how these things happen, but I know that the people I'm working with can deliver it with a service of excellence that I know will be exactly what you're looking for and the transformation it provides for you, the impact it provides for you is exactly what you need. And that's something I'm excited about selling. That's actually that's actually a really good point to actually focus on the impact that you're trying to make not necessarily the product itself because i think it changes it changes your perception in a way it changes how you look at the whole like what what i'm selling so even if i don't believe in the product how will this like you said how is this product gonna give value to this business what's the impact that it's gonna make for your business having this kind of product and one thing that i was thinking about and actually, I had someone on the podcast, I had a neurosales expert on the podcast, and he said something that really struck with me because looking at my sales experience, I'm curious to hear what you would say. He's like, in typical sales, when you're learning how to sell, the sole focus, usually, if you're looking, if let's say it's on a one to 10 scale, eight out of, 80% of the time, you were focusing on selling, not on the buyer. And I thought that was very interesting. You weren't, we weren't we're just thinking about how do we sell this product? What's the right words? What's the right, how do I hook this guy? But we weren't talking about how the buyer psychology, how do they think? What are the challenges they face and how do all that? So why do you think there's a disconnect with such a disconnect between focusing on sales and focusing instead of focusing on the buyer, which is at the end of the day, the person that we need to make the sale? All right. Well, what I'll do, Khaled, is I'll, I'll, I'll just work down this this framework. I'll just go sure. from top to bottom just so we have a frame of reference that is accurate. Um, yeah. Because of what you mentioned at the beginning, the three loves is actually five loves. Okay. So okay. the five loves of selling are this love the impact. We just talked about when you get clear on why you want to solve this problem for the client. That's what you want to focus on first. Right. The second is love the client. And this answers your question a little bit, because the best way to love the client is to understand the client understanding is the best form of loving. And that this even touches on your previous question, which is, you know, what if you don't love the product? Well, you got to ask yourself, are you the client? Because most of the times we might get confused that we are the client. And if we think we are the client, you're like, for example, if me and you, let's say we walk into a dealership to buy, um, oh, let's use a fantastic example. Let's say we both want to buy a Lamborghini, right? And we walk in and then I go to you and I'm like, Khalid, like a Lamborghini, look at the price and the gas mileage isn't even that good. Why would you want to buy this car? It's clearly overpriced. When then you're like, well, Jason, that's not what I'm looking for. I want this car. It's been a dream car. It's a luxury item. I want to show it to my friends. I want to get the attention with it. And I can look at it and be like, you could get a Corolla and that would have better fuel mileage. And if my, my interest is a Corolla, um, and, and fuel mileage and, and looking at what are the benefits, the cost benefit analysis of a vehicle that gets me to point A to point B, I'll never buy a Lamborghini, but you, you might be very different and you're looking for that specific thing. So if I understood you, I would sell to you differently. So even if you're the car salesperson that can't afford a Lamborghini, you can't sell the person like you think he's you. They have very different needs, very different desires. And when you understand them, you can speak the correct language. Now, 
understanding the client, the second love is, is what I speak about. Then you can start thinking about the product and you can optimize the product in the best way possible. You know, I, I answered your question such as if you're the product, uh, you're the client and you don't like the product, but you're not the client, you're just the seller. But what if your product is bad? Like, have you ever worked for a company where the product you're selling is bad? Well, the solution is simpler. Don't fake it till you make it. Just fix it. Like, fix the product. That should be your priority. And if you're within an organization that doesn't want to invest in fixing the product, you should start questioning where you're going to use your amazing skills in selling to push a company that actually will put the product. Like, mm. think of any company out there and you tell them, hi, I'm a salesperson who truly is getting enthusiastic about selling any product or service that truly makes a difference. And if you have a good product and you're looking for people that are talented, enthusiastic, and know how to hit goals, then I'm your guy. You will never run out of a job. So you have the luxury as a salesperson to pick a company that has a product that is going to truly move the needle. You should not have to settle for a shitty product to sell. And if yeah. you're working for a company that has a bad product, see that the leadership team is excited about improving it. Maybe you're just getting started. Maybe it's just not at the point it could be, but you're working at making it better. And your intentions is on the impact. And when you know the company is why at the impact level and you know they understand the client and they're working on the product, you can maybe have some tolerance. But if you see that they just have a habit and a, a non-love perspective on the product, then I don't think that's the type of place that deserve an A-class type of salesperson. So, you know, that that's where I would lead it. Now, to get to the question, sorry, I had to work down this. No, framework. no, please. I love, I love it. Number four is the one I haven't talked about yet, but I'll tell you number five is love yourself, which we already covered, right? But the number four, this is where there's a big mistake that happens because number four is kind of like that forbidden fruit. It's a love, but it could turn to lust, right? It's kind of like, it's like the sex of the sales process or the whole thing. And it's loving the process of selling, loving the process of selling. And this okay. is where a lot of people make a mistake. You will first fall in love with the process of selling. And when you do that, you're actually not coming from a place of love. You're coming from a place of fear and pride. And that's where manipulation happens. You feel that you're the one who's mastered the closing techniques. You've mastered the psychology to really just run the numbers and not care about the client, not care about the product, not care about the impact. But you know the neurological, scientific ways that you can manipulate people with triggers of influence, which I'm sure your trainer mentioned in the last episode, that really get people to take action. That's easy to learn and seductive to learn because you can learn to control a lot of other people with the power of communication and language. And that is a forbidden fruit. And I say that most of the problems we see in salespeople, all the negative impressions we have is people that have been tempted by the forbidden fruit of just loving the sales process, ignoring every other love. And that is not love, that is lust, it is temporary, it doesn't fulfill in the long term, and it usually leads to with a lot of people with substance abuse or addiction issues, which I find is actually a very curious correlation. When you see people that are very hardcore into a sales role and finding themselves selling something that they might not be proud of, that they just do it for the numbers, they feel like they're, they're trying to fill a void by just having more pride and moving the needle and hitting those goals, but there's an insatiable desire that's never getting fed and that's a confusion that you can fall into and so there you have it love the impact love the client love the product love the process and love yourself and i usually run them in that order that's i think looking back so because i was familiar with the previous framework which was the three seeing how it's evolved into the five i think the point that for me personally out of the ones you talked about that i didn't maybe pay enough attention to or didn't see the negative side of it was loving the process because everyone tell every, it's, a, it's a it's a phrase that a lot of people say like when you're working towards a goal love the process love the process but maybe in sales because it's people involved because it's almost like like you correctly said it's like an addiction it's like that rush it's like that ability to oh, i was able to convince someone to do this it gives you that sense of like power and confidence and validation like i i controlled in quotation marks, the person, for example. And I think this perfectly comes on to something you talked about in the talk, which I didn't consider, but I've seen it in front of my eyes as well, is true value versus perceived value. And I mm -hmm. thought that was something really crucial uh, when it comes to selling. But I was also starting to think, is that also subjective? Because if I could, do you think if I could convince you of a certain perceived value to a client, doesn't that for them come become their true value, even though I know it's not the true value of the product? That's a powerful question. And then 
what I would do is just lay out the framework, how I've actually fully defined it. Because as a salesperson, right, it's true. You have a lot of power and you can have a lot of control. And having that awareness is kind of like with great power comes great responsibility. responsibility for sure. So um, what, what I, I call it real value, like true value, real value, just bring them in. Uh, we'll call it real value just for now. Real value is only known once the buyer has it in his hands, right? Before that, it's all guesswork. Perceived value is fully subjective based on what you do, based on your marketing and your sales. I'll give a quick example that's going to be almost absurd for the people. But if I say, Khaled, I will give you a thousand US dollars if you pay me a hundred US dollars right now. Does it sound like a good deal? Sounds like a great deal. Perfect. So you give me a hundred dollars, I'll give you a thousand. Boom. It's done. The transaction's over. So you 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 already did the math in your head. You're like, okay, well, this is worth a thousand. I'm gonna get a thousand when it's done, and it only costs me a hundred. The cost is less, or your price is less. And so this makes sense. Now, imagine that I could run this business and my if I had a business and all I needed to do was hit my sales numbers and I could sell for $100, $1,000 to people, I could run the business forever, but then you're like, "Wait a sec, there's a cost. I need to I need to give a I need to give $1,000 when they pay me a 100." That doesn't make sense. So the four major variables are cost, price, perceived value, and real value. And if you want to run a successful business, it's like this. You can't run anything with the cost being higher than the whole equation. So your cost needs to be at the lowest. If your cost is too high, you're going to run out of business, right? So your price needs to be higher than the cost, unless you're being, you know, trying to get market share and you're, there's actually a lot of laws behind that that you can't. But nonetheless, let's just go for the simple here. Your cost is going to be at the lowest as you can possible. And as a salesperson, you're actually in control of cost. I mean, you can modify the product. You could see what services you can take out, features you can take out. You can speak to management and see if the cost can be lowered to allow you to have bigger margins based on the price, right? So your cost needs to be at the lowest. The second is your price. And again, as a salesperson, you're in control of the price. You can set the price to whatever you want based on the policies of the company, but those can also change. You can even modify the payment plan. So there's a lot of flexibility on price, right? But nonetheless, you want your price to be higher than the cost or you're running out of business, right? Now, this is where it gets fun. Perceived value, the way that I define it, is just everything that the person thinks they're going to get before they buy. And this can be modified to whatever you want. Like I just showed in the example, if I tell you $1,000, for 100 bucks, I'll give you $1,000, you're like, well, this is a great deal. I'll 10x my money. And this is all perceived value. I could just make that claim. And then the moment you give me $100, I give you nothing. And that's the difference between perceived value and real value. Is everything you think you're going to get until the transaction happens, and then what you actually get once the transaction's complete. And this is where a lot of people can make the mistake because if you go and you advertise something to be the most extraordinary thing you've ever had that solves all the problems 100% but the moment they put their hands on it, it actually doesn't, then you're actually having a real value that is lower. And every one of the variables I've explained here needs to be higher than the one I stated previously. So the lowest is the cost, then price needs to be a little higher than the cost. Your perceived value needs to be higher than the price. Why? Well, if the perceived value is lower than the price, if I told you, uh, if you give me $100, I'll give you back $50, you'll say no, because the value is $50, but I'm asking you $100 in exchange, that makes no sense. And so your perceived value needs to be higher than the price. But where it gets tricky is you want your real value to be higher than the perceived value. And that's where a lot of people make a mistake. Because it's easy to pump up perceived value, but to deliver the real value, again, you're in control of all of this as a salesperson because the real value can be improved. You can have product improvements. And, you know, you talk about how it's subjective to the person 100%. This is why the second love is love for the client because the way you get closer to what the real value may potentially be comes from a better understanding of who are you selling to. This is why it's important to have client personas, client avatar, who are they? What do they want? If if you're Khaled walking into a Lamborghini dealership, and I know that for you, owning a Lamborghini is worth half a million. Like you have a lot of disposable income. You value fancy cars. You love speedy cars. You like exclusive luxury vehicle. And that's a part of your identity. If I sell to you a half a, a quarter million dollar car, and in your head, owning this is going to be like half a million dollars. It's a beautiful sale and I've transferred you immense value and I've made sure to make you communicate. And here's how I would try to make the formula work. If the price I'm selling it to you is a quarter million dollars 
and your, 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 your real value, once you have it, is probably going to be close to half a million. And if I can sell this to you for $300,000 as a perceived value, I'm just saying like once you own this, like here's the benefits, and I can get you to feel like it's a $300,000 transaction, you think it's a good deal because the price is lower than what you think you're going to get, but the moment you get it, it's even better. You just won the game. And so I hope that gives you a bit of a framework of what you can look like. But the real difference is perceived value is everything someone thinks it's going to be worth when they buy it. And real value is exactly what it will be worth once they do. And sometimes you can miss the mark. Like the equal equation would be, you know, I make you think it's a $300,000 purchase of value. You pay $250,000. You own the Lamborghini. After two weeks, you're like, wow, this is boring. I didn't care that much. Maybe now it's worth $100,000. Now you have buyer's remorse. And so... These are things you need to manage and that can change per client, but you can always become better at understanding the client to try to hit the mark closer every time and then adjust your product suite to match. You know, I think Porsche did a really good job in that because I think a lot of people wanted a Porsche, which was a really expensive price point. They realized there's a lot of people that would buy a Porsche and really want it at around eighty to $90,000 and they created a market segment for it. So this is where you can get creative and seeing what the client needs and create something at that price point that matches their needs. Yeah, no, I think and that's a <clears throat> thanks so much for like breaking that down and really explaining because I think, like you said, there is sometimes a disconnect between the, the true value or the real value, as you described it, and the perceived value of a product. But something you also said, which I think is really the bedrock behind selling and you talked about it in your talk a little bit, which is you just said it now. How would I feel? So and like you said, there's an underlying emotion behind every sale. There's always something behind that door. And you also said that to sell from a like to know that you're always going to be happy with what you're selling is to sell. I just want to make sure I say this right. What are you that to make sure whatever you're giving them is w worth more than what they're paying you? Because then you don't feel like I'm not taking. I'm giving and I'm giving probably even more than what you're actually paying for. So that's why I feel like I guess that what gives you that sense of fulfillment. In, in a way and one thing but one thing you were talking about when you were working at that other company and you that coaching program and you just felt bad about selling that kind of product and so on is that you're like I sold I uh, the example you use I closed that client but I felt bad afterwards you actually went experienced some depression afterwards so some you felt like something was taken away from you and what I didn't consider before is that in a sale it's not just it's not just a transaction of, of money. There's so many other factors uh, that go into that, like emotions and so on. So could you walk us through what are some of the other, I guess, factors that go into a sales transaction that maybe we're not paying attention to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I what I first start is I define selling in a different way. And, you know, maybe I've been in the personal growth industry that gives me permission to use these more fun terms. But I'll, I'll explain it here in a way that can be concrete, even if you're someone that's non-spiritual and a hardcore salesperson, because you'll get this. Selling is nothing more than an energy exchange between conscious beings. All right. So selling is an energy exchange. That's it. And then energy is a great word because it really encompasses anything that will go in the process of a sales transaction. You know, most people thinking goods or service is going to be exchanged for money. Now, the easiest thing to look at is money itself, right? Money is nothing more than stored energy. Like if we went into ancient times and let's say I wanted to sell you, um, you know, a pair or sword, I want to sell you a sword. And then you would be like, well, I have these chicken eggs. Would you like to trade 12 eggs for a sword? And I'd make a decision like, oh, okay, is that what I want? Is it worth the sword? And now we have to translate. And it's like, it's very complicated. And the most amazing invention that happened in our humanity, I think, is this a tool that we were able to create called money. Funny, some people think it's the root of all evil. I think it's the greatest gift we've ever received as humanity because it allowed us to store energy. Because if you were trying to sell your eggs and you didn't have anybody buying them right away, that, you know, you... You didn't want to buy the sword. You're like, oh, maybe I'll buy it. But then your eggs go expired. Your energy got expired. But because we created these marketplaces that allowed for capital to become these vast amount of stored energy, we could start directing this energy into things that we wanted to create in the world. I mean, this is probably the best, most beautiful definition I've ever seen of venture capital is really mobilizing energy into creating what you think should be created in the world. Now, when I talk about energy, money being stored energy, products and services are also energy. If you think about a product, like I'm sitting on a chair, and let's say this chair is made of wood. Well, the wood had to come from a tree that needed to be cut down, that needed to be refined and processed and distributed and sold. That took energy 
to create. You even took natural resources that are energy in its form. So every product is a product of refinement of raw material that is all energy that was used to create it. People had to work at it. People had to make it happen. And now the other one that I like to speak about is time. And you know, the funny thing is like time, time is money, but actually they say time is more valuable than money. And the only reason is this, where money can be stored energy, time is active energy. Because the moment it's passed, it's gone. So it can only be used in the moment it's available. And so when you put everything down in a unique formula where it's everything is energy, you have time, you have the product or the service that took time, took money to create, took raw material, energy, all that was is being exchanged for the stored energy, the money. But here's where I add something special, which is there's another variant in the equation, which I called emotion. And, you know, a lot of people talk about emotion being energy in motion. And so there's an emotion in the sales transaction. And I break it down into four levels. And I've talked about the first one already, which is SGBs, the shame, guilt, blockages. Like if you've ever stepped into a sales transaction and you know the person selling you a bad product, like they're not excited about selling you. You feel what the seller is selling to you even when you walk into the room because there's a vibe. And these are typically the shame, guilt, blockages. And those can come from various sources, namely having your own fears of rejections, your fears of identity. Maybe you don't want to be a salesperson, but you're forced to be one and you feel shameful about doing it. Um, maybe the product you're selling is crap and you know you're selling more problems the moment they buy it. And then guess what? You're going to be shameful about having to do that because nobody wants to go and take advantage of another human being by nature. It's not what we want, you know, but we're often forced or we feel like we're forced to get into those circumstances. So the lowest vibration is shame and guilt. And both you as a seller, you'll actually block the whole sales transaction because every transaction creates more shame and guilt and it blocks you from even wanting to initiate a sales process. You don't want to pick up the phone to follow up. You don't want to write that email. You don't, you fear the person walking into the store because it'll trigger those traumas. Now there's ways to heal that. What I usually explain to people are things like, hey, guess what? These blockages actually come from our childhood. You know, if it's not the caricature of the used car salesman that we feel we step into the identity of, maybe as a child we were, quote unquote, natural salespeople, quite shameless kids asking for what we want until a moment arises where parents, you keep asking, going, mom, dad, please, 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 can I have this, give me that? Little salesperson, but actually a really bad one because you're selfish when you're a child. You don't think about who you're selling to. You just want what you want, right? True, so at true. some point, parents end up saying, no means no, stop asking. And if you've done any kind of RTT hypnosis therapy, you know that at that time is where you're most imprintable. And so if an imprint that says, when I ask for what I want and demand others to give me what they have, I will not be loved. I will be hated. I will be rejected. That leaves an imprint that makes a lot of people fearful of sales. So that's a part that you really need to heal. Now, moving beyond that is where I call it the FPP or the fear pride paradox. And this is where a lot of people get dangerous with sales. So when you're operating from this level, the fear pride paradox is really when you start falling in love with the process of selling, but maybe nothing else. Maybe you've learned this idea like, ooh, look at that. I can do the magic. I can move people. I can tran I can control. And now you have this like this neediness around selling. You have this validation that comes from selling. And that's where people can be dangerous because people are looking for clarity today. And a person that understands the sales process, follows a set of scripts, understands human psychology and nothing else, can do a lot of movement with the energy. But it comes at a cost. Because if you've manipulated people into making them make a decision that wasn't in their true service, you're going to feel like crap about it. Like maybe not now, which is again why I see there seems to be a tendency around addiction issues, um, around people that sell from this emotion, whether it's drinking, alcohol, or, or drugs, or, or sex addictions. Like this is usually things you would characterize around high-performance salespeople that might be selling from a place of pride. Because what happens is you're not taking responsibility for your sale. You're just mm. making it because you know it brings the results you want. So that's the second layer. And the buyer is left with less. Like now they're more fearful about salespeople. They got manipulated. They have a negative impression around sales. And they were left with giving up more energy than what they received in return. They feel like crap too. And the other person, that's the seller, just decides to numb themselves to this reality. But it seems to catch up after a while. And anybody who's been in sales, like I explained my example where I ended up doing these sales at a very young age, you have that realization that it's not right. Like sometimes you're not, you're, you're being ignorant in the process, but there are better ways. 
But the problem is people usually go to this third level, which I call the, uh, <laughs> the, the rational sabotage, right? Is okay. once you decide to say, hey, I can do better. I want to make sure that I'm selling things that truly make you know, sense for people to buy. But you've been so jaded with understanding how you've manipulated people that you fall to this RS, this rational sabotage. And what happens here, it's interesting, is you'll get into a sales process and you'll just like vomit all the data on the buyer, right? You'll just like be like, hey, you can buy this Lamborghini, but I know it's a little more expensive than a Toyota, but it's still a really fancy car. I don't know if you're looking for a fancy car, but it makes you look good, but I don't know if that's what you're into. And like an over-talkative salesperson, you've probably seen the type, and, and they're trying to rationalize everything. And what they're, what's interesting is the reason you start doing this is because you feel like you're responsible for telling them all the information for them to make the decision. But rather, you're not taking responsibility for the sale you're about to make. You're trying to give that responsibility to the buyer, and the buyer doesn't want it. The buyer is coming to a salesperson so that they can have a resource that they can trust and be responsible for holding them by the hand and making them make an educated purchase. And that's where most people feel that these are the only options available. You're like, ah, oh, I'm either having these shame and guilt blockages or I'm selling like an a-hole with these fear pride paradox where I'm just manipulating people. And when I try to be the nice guy or this nice girl and I sell from this place of rationality and I give all the data, well, people don't buy as much. Your sales numbers start going down when you've actually went up in the vibration. So you're like, what's going on? <laughs> and that's why I say that the best emotion to have is be able to sell with love. And when you sell from a place of love, that's what most people don't think about. It's not in your sales books. It's not in your sales literature. But what happens is you decide to care. You decide to take responsibility. And you're willing to risk it because your intentions are based in a place of love. You have a love for the impact. You love the, the buyer that you're selling to. You love the product that you're selling. You love the sales process too. And you have self-love. So guess what? You become relentless. You become enthusiastic. You can jump up and down and be going to that person saying like, I'm so glad you walked into this place because there's a really strong chance that exactly what you're looking for is right here and I'll be the one to help you. And people go like, damn, <laughs> there's a new energy in the room. And that's what happens when the sales process is actually filled with love is you'll feel it and the buyer will feel it and everyone will walk away from that transaction with love on both sides and it gets maximized and it makes the fucking world a better place. Sorry, I just dropped an F-bomb there. Sorry. Okay. This is your show. <laughs> Drop as many as you'd like. <laughs> it's all we'll good. stick with one. <laughs> uh, first of all, man, the, the way you're sp speaking about money and time as a stored energy, that is something I've never considered before. And the examples that you mentioned made perfect sense especially taking looking how it was in the past and why it has provided so much value but like you said it's just a tool and with time unfortunately with time it's active and you can't as everyone says you can time is the one resource that you can't get back but also looking at things like the fear the fear pride paradox the rash the rationale thing you've really like i'm there's so much i've learned from this conversation and about sales i've gained such a new perspective on it and it really looks like you've taken the time to dive deep really deep into the psychology behind what is the what are the blocks that people have where is this all coming from is it personal is it from the client and so on but one thing i wanted to just to wrap up the whole the the sales piece of the conversation is i know looking at when you started you had three there were three steps uh in the in how to love uh, how to love selling and now there are five but i was thinking from because this talk the talk you gave was in 2015 and here we are now in 2020 so it's been five years and clearly the process has grown and your perspective has changed but is there one thing that you thought like in how you understood selling in 2015 that either you don't believe now or you think it was <clears throat> excuse me incomplete or is there's a you have a new perception on it that's a beautiful question to ask and uh, yeah there definitely is i um I, it was actually from a conversation with a ex-colleague of mine, his name is Zikri. And Zikri runs an NGO called Incitement. And they're doing a lot of programs to help people that are more uh, difficult situations, being able to inspire them, build up their entrepreneurial skills. And when I explained to him this, this three-step process initially, he was like, this is a load of crap. Only people of privilege can afford to sell from love. And Ooh. I had to pause. And I told him he's right. And there's some things that I've learned in the process. He's absolutely right. To sell with love is a privilege. Because here's what happens. If I'm in the streets and I'm trying to sell 
you know, a fake Rolex, right? And I'm walking up to people and I'm like, hey, do you want to buy a real Rolex? Like I've lived in, I went to the streets of, you know, you're in Thailand, you see some vendors uh, in the streets of Bangkok, for example, they'll be settling some fake watches and they'll be telling you, oh, it's real, it's real, come on, try it on, looks good. And they're peddling and they're hustling and they're trying to sell these watches. And like, at this point, you think about what is the love that they have the most in this sales process. It's a love for themselves and their family. They have a mortgage to pay. They have families to feed and their mouths to feed. And when you sell from that place, you can't be thinking about the impact on the grand scale. You're just trying to make ends meet, which is really interesting because even if you think about those bad experiences like a used car salesman, right? Well, a used car salesman needs to pay the bills too. And they learn some tactics that they need to follow that allows them to be able to hit the quotas that they need to hit or they get fired. And here we are keeping a huge burden against ourselves for thinking about the used car salesman resisting sales thinking that that's the way they need to sell and all salespeople are bad when you have no understanding of their circumstances and why is it that they may be forced to sell this way so there's a lot of compassion that needs to come in place that not everybody is at the same level of abundance but i've also realized something amazing by going down this discussion because a part of me when i first heard that was like you're wrong <laughs> you know, like our, our first, yeah, someone yeah. challenges you. The first thing you're like, no, you're wrong. And <laughs> I, he, he hit the nail on the head and I had to think. And, you know, the, through the research, I actually realized that, yes, being able to sell with love is a privilege. But here's the beauty of it is if you have any level of privilege, any level of abundance, it becomes your duty to be able to sell with love because you're in a position that you can now, there's a couple things that are beautiful around this, right? If you're in a position that you can sell from love because you can get a job at a place that does have a great product and it's not a forced job, it's a choice job, then now you can be amazingly relentless at selling this with love because when you can sell it with love, you have an understanding that yes, every single one of these transactions creates abundance in the world because you're solving problems at a way that is more efficient than if people didn't have your solution. And so the byproduct of selling with love in the equation is actually residual abundance. Now, in the book, I go a little deeper about loving the impact, that the impact shouldn't be just about the impact for the buyer. You can actually take a perspective of looking at the impact in the world. And this becomes really fascinating. You look at a gentleman like Elon Musk, right, where he's just, you know, shipping products and people to a space station right now. But everybody knows that the reason Elon Musk created SpaceX is because he wants to make humanity an interplanetary species. He's thinking about the entire world and he's like, what are the technologies I need to push forwards and make advance so that we can actually go and colonize Mars because humanity needs a backup drive. He finds himself being able to hire the smartest people working on the greatest problems to be solved that actually impact the entire humanity. This, he's the sick, from, from what I looked at today, he's the second richest person on the planet right now, right after Jeff Bezos, who also is looking to solve a giant problem, which is how do I make distribution of goods and services in the most efficient way possible that offers the best customer service on the planet. And when you have these powerful impact missions that are trying to encompass as much as the world as possible, you know, the interesting thing that happens is you get to draw the right people, right investors, build the bigger products that have a bigger vision, and all of the abundance is a spillover for the rest. Now, if that person's in the street needing to sell used Rolexes and is not having a level of abundance, the technologies and the products that you sell that raise the abundance for some raises the abundance for all because one like the spillover effects becomes huge and you can take the time to look at it. Like if I'm selling, for example, um, I'm going to use something really simple here. Let's say I'm using an example of the Lamborghini, right? And you end up selling that Lamborghini to the person who was looking for that value in their lives and they got it. They're happy, but now guess what? Lamborghini made an extra sale that actually allows them to keep their plants open, which means they can make more Lamborghinis, which means that they buy parts that are getting manufactured, perhaps in Thailand, which means that there's some workers that are making money in Thailand that are actually going to be spending this money, which actually will raise up the level of wealth and, and maybe it'll start funding social pro like you see where this is going like one sale has such a trickle effect and we don't take the time to realize it and if you can become so conscious about the supply chain impacts of every sale that you make as an impact love you can start having a lot of fuel behind you as to why you want to sell from that place and it becomes contagious it becomes effective and it really raises the tide for everybody else and so yes 
Selling with love is a privilege for the few, but the ones that choose to do it and can show how it's actually more beneficial to sell from a place of love than sell from a place of manipulation, that you actually start having those residual effects that raises the tide for everybody else. And I truly hope that when people learn this, I mean, this is why I do what I do. If businesses start enabling their sales forces to sell from a place of love, we're going to start eradicating a lot of real problems on the planet. And when you start doing that, you start making life better for everyone on the planet. Yeah. I think, first of all, that's a beautiful way to look at look at sales because even I can speak from experience, I did not, I never went my, I never went that far to, you know, really go down that supply chain and be like, okay, if I sell this product to this company, what is who does that help? Who does this affect? What's all that behind? And I think that's a really important thing to think about because if you're aware of that and you're aware of the potential impact and the benefit that's coming with it, you as as a salesperson as well, I'm going to feel a lot happier doing what I do. So I'm going to be more exact, like you said, and I'm going to be more inclined to want to continue selling and continue giving that impact. But what your friend said blew my mind because it's so true. Like selling only people who, who are in a position of privilege can afford to sell 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 with love and sell in that way because like you said not everyone has the same situation but what i also liked about what you talked about is that if you do have some level it is your duty to do that and i think that's something that's very important because if you don't think of it in that way i can always come up with an excuse why i don't need to do that but if you appreciate your your privilege then you should be able to do that and you know what's funny is that when you can make just that choice you know, the moment you yeah. can make that choice, it brings more abundance to you too. Like that person who's selling the watches, they're not probably at the level of, you know, consciousness to even realize that. But the moment you do and you say, hey, maybe I can sell from a place of love too. Imagine the person, you know, and, and I'm using this as an example. It might not be super accurate, but it could work. Like imagine they realize that, hey, maybe I should set a better vision. Imagine if that person is thinking, well, I got to sell these watches right now because eventually I'd love to have my own jewelry store and be able to have real Rolexes. And imagine if he'd walk up to people in the street just saying, hey, I have these fake watches. You know it, I know it, but I want you to know that I've been selling these for years because my goal is actually to open a watch store and I want to have those real Rolexes being on my shelves. And if you decide to make one of these purchases, this is all I know for now. I'm hoping for something better, but you would support me in that mission. You're going to love this watch. Knowing that it's fake, it's definitely at a discount, but hopefully you can support me on this mission. I would be more inclined to buy this man a Rolex. I'd at least give him some money in the process, you know? Like yeah. they have that why behind it. Now I'm like, mm. oh, he's not somebody trying to take advantage of me. He's someone with a dream and is trying to figure it out, which is pretty much what all of us are. Exactly, exactly. I think you made, that's such a good point that it changes the intent. I think that's something that's crucial. It changes that intention behind it. And like you said, if using that example if someone was doing that and now even myself included i if you were that honest with me and that's genuinely the vibe made me feel that way that this is your dream and this is what you're trying to do i'd even be more inclined to you know help you out in that way if there's any way i could um and one thing i was thinking about because i wanted to come onto the podcast because uh, i think it's so important especially given 2020 being superhuman at work i think if anything has become quite more challenging than it was before that's for sure and when I was trying to think about, I'm like, okay, in in sales, you say it's important to love your client. When bring it to the podcast world, because I know you're the host of the podcast and you, you're the one who reached out to guests and does the research. So then is it just as important as the host to love your guests as well? <laughs> um, yes. Well, you would definitely, I mean, I don't need to love them personally. Yeah, no, yes, of <laughs> and, course, of course, yeah. But yeah, you can definitely feel it when you resonate with somebody's message a lot more. Um, and when I when I bring a, a guest onto the podcast, right, I'm selling to them. They become the client and then I want to understand them. Why would they want to come on the podcast? What's important to them? What do I give them in return? What's the value for their time? Again, I'm making an energetic transaction here because what I'm requiring is for their time to be exchanged for what? Again, you got to communicate that clearly. So if you're running a podcast or you're doing any kind of, you know, maybe you're running a blog, you want to have people write on it. Like, what's the value you are providing? And it, it, it becomes a sales process 100%. And loving them again is understanding them. So if I have someone that's about to launch a book, then I could say, hey, I noticed you're about to launch this book. Uh, I have a podcast that gets about 50,000 downloads a month. We could have an episode for you there. We definitely would love to mention your book in the process. We hope it will develop some new fans that are very enthusiastic about discovering you and your book. You see here, I can apply the process of selling 
because I've had an understanding of who I want to sell to. I get clarity on the product that I offer, but I also would want a why at the start. And in my case, for you know, superhumans at work, I I actually have my my own my big motto as to what I do and why I do it is because I want businesses to care more. And the ways okay. you can care more is number one, you can care more about the way you sell. You can also care more about the people that work for you. And if you can educate the people that work for you to actually care more, it makes a business as an entity care more, which is why superhumans at work is something I really care about. And why if I bring someone to the show and I say, hey, this is a podcast, it's all about educating people to become superhumans at work because the more people that work in companies and care will make better companies that care and better companies that care make the world a better place. Again, you have another strong why as opposed to someone saying like, hey, can you come on my podcast? Because you have a couple of followers that I also want to get and I'm just trying to get the maximum amount of money in my pockets. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Right? That's true. So yeah. take the time to get clear on your own why and yeah. then take the time to understand who you want to bring on the show and why you understand them. Again, loving is understanding. It's not necessarily falling in love or having anything romantic. It goes to the point that you care enough about understanding them. And then whatever is your podcast, you can tell them what is it going to do for them and then finally, you know, use the language that's necessary for them to understand that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think yeah, I think you said it. Loving is understanding, and that's and that's the context I was trying to uh, I was I was using. And you know, giving the time to research to guess, understand where they are in their life, what is it they do, and what value can you bring to them, as well as what value would they bring to you? Like, for example, with me, with my podcast, and like having uh, you as a guest, and all my other guests, you everyone's an everyone's an expert in a certain field everyone's good at something and the whole idea behind my podcast is i just want to help people so if i can sit down and have a good conversation with some with your like for example yourself jason and there's a salesperson listening to this right now i guarantee there's so much about selling that they probably haven't considered and that's one person that i've helped and it's just a trickle like you said it's that it kind of relates to our conversation is that impact that just multiplier. if i help that one guy maybe he'll tell his friend maybe and so on um but when you reach i'm curious what's your What's your outreach process? Like, how do you decide what guests you want to have on? Because I know with Mindvalley, I've, you know, as an All Access member, I've taken so many of the courses from some of the top performers and top guys in the world. So you, there's already quite a big network of top performers and people that you have direct access to. But do you, are you more, is it, is there, do you have a more tactical approach? Like maybe there's a theme that you like to go for or how, do you, how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, again, I'll, I'll speak from the perspective of Mindvalley, which is different for most people, right? Because Mindvalley yeah. being an authority brand, there's a branding element. So if you have a brand, you usually lead with that. So it's like, hey, um, you know, hey, hey Khaled, uh, Khaled, like uh, this is Jason from Mindvalley. We're personal growth education and we reach, you know, over 15 million people a month. Like I can throw big numbers that people are looking for, but that's probably not the most helpful answer for the people. I think for especially the people starting out, there's mm. probably some different things you want to look into. So if you're trying to get bigger name authors, right? Um, I think the principles of influence by Robert Cialdini is a very good resource to look into because some people just want to do business and do something for with people they like, right? So, and if you've, and also reciprocity is a big thing. So um, there's one of the quests that I have a feeling you've also went through. It's with uh, Keith Ferrazzi. Oh, Keith yeah. Ferrazzi talks about networking a lot and he talks about having a relationship action plan, so an, a wrap, right? And this, in essence, defines that if you have a list of people you want to connect with, I think having a podcast is the best business card ever because now you have an intent of reaching out with people and a benefit to offer them. But if you don't have those huge numbers yet on the podcast, a lot of times people will be very flexible about jumping on a podcast if they feel that it's going to be a good time. You know, for example, for me and you, um, you... The moment you reached out and said that you were a Mindvalley All Access member, that was the green card. Like, because you're that, I said yes automatically. I say no most of the time, but I have a relationship with Mindvalley. And the fact that you're an All Access member is something that I definitely want to support because I know the more people that become All Access members are people that are continuously learning. And of course, I want to support that. Um, but this actually gives you a ticket. So, in your specific example, there's a lot of authors that you could reach out to and mention hi. I'm an all access member. Your quest was one of the most impactful things that I've went through. And I'd love to be able to have a 20 minute conversation with you on a zoom call where I can actually make this feature to all the people that listen to my podcast, because I'm all about helping people. And sometimes it might not be a million people's, although I'm striving to get there, but if I can get at least one person to have a deep transformation because they took the time to listen to what you have to say, that will be a mission well started, but that's not where I'm going to be done already there there's some language you can use in the sales process that allows people to figure it out if you're listening to this 
of course, I'm not going to go into sales pitch for Mindvalley because I don't work for them <laughs> anymore. Um, but I would say this. There's a lot of power that comes from associations. You should look at places you can get into associations that have a membership, whether you're part of a mastermind. There's ways you can get closer to these communities. In the podcasting world, there's so many places you can go and find people looking for guests, people looking for uh, for hosts or playlists for hosts to be on. So there's a lot of ways you can go at it. But if you write one amazing targeted email to somebody that you genuinely care and come from a place of love, you can really do wonders. Like I've seen, like I'll give you an example. There's one person I haven't had on my podcast and I know why. Because I didn't come from a place of love and he smelled it. His name is Seth Godin. Oh, Seth wow. Seth Godin yeah, is yeah, know, amazing. Seth. Yeah. I've read some of his books and I reached out with an email and he replied, ah, oh, cool, but no thanks and nothing else. And I was like, damn it. I've tried again. Same reply no thank you like it, and it just it hurts the no hurts but i think but i also see he's been on a lot of small podcasts because he wants to be able to support people that are just getting started but i'd also say if i went through his alternative mba program and paid to become a graduate then i have a feeling he might be more inclined to do business with me so you know if you are someone that's doing podcasts it's a great business card because you can actually start having conversations with people and i do have a uh, i do have a mini course on how to start your own podcast by the way um but i think it's a very powerful thing for your brand and if you decide to want if you have like make a list of who are the 10 people that if you got on your podcast you would have a very legit podcast and then figure out what is important to them what can you buy from them sometimes yeah. you have to pay to play and that's okay because you're going to get a lot of value in the process too so I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of went on a tangent. Yeah, no, no, that no, that really does. And it's so funny that the two people, the the examples you used, like for example, Keith Ferrazzi, I've taken the uh, that course and the rap and what the thing I've the biggest thing I took from that course is two things: is that creating the the five things you can do for that person, like how can you help them before, like when you connect with them or before you reach out to build your network, that's one. But I think the biggest thing that I took from that course and that has served me so well and all the guests I've had on my podcast, because like me, for example, me and you today, this is the first time we met and a lot of my guests, that's how it's turned out, is just the worst thing someone can say is no. So I'm like, what do I have? What do I have to lose? Obviously, I take the time. I do my research before I reach out to a guest. It's not just like, hey, would you want to come on? There's a reason I want you to come on the podcast. But just ask. You don't know what's going to happen. And so funny that you brought up Seth Godin because I actually have a quote from a podcast that he was on recently called Impact Theory. And I wanted to ask you about it because it kind of plays into the superhumans at work and how I know you and Vision talked about being how... As, as you grow, like as if you focus on personal growth and it's like company-wide, your business is going to grow exponentially. And that's that's a given. And he said, but, but there's also sometimes people talk about, uh, this is not what, you know, this is, I don't do work I'm passionate about and so on. And Seth said something that really like gave me a new perspective. He's like, it's easier to love what you do and gain a love for what you do than to do what you love. And I thought that was so profound. What do you think of that? Do you think, do you resonate with that? Yeah, I definitely do. It's it's interesting you brought that up. I was currently reading Ego is the Enemy, uh, which is Ryan Holiday's book, and in it talking about how passion is a trap um, and it's actually not very long-lasting. So when you say poly or passion, it's kind of like a flame that can wicker, that can you know get turned down by a slight wind that will turn it off, you know? And I think if you if you fall in love with the purpose uh, or the, the impact, right? Like the impact is not, that's why it's the first love. That goes beyond the product. And that's why it's, the product is not the first love, because again, if your interests change, if the market changes and the product is no longer relevant, you won't find yourself having a breakup. But the impact, the impact is really where you want to have the first love. And if you truly love the impact and you care about it, like let's say you want to eradicate world hunger, you can find a lot of ways you can work towards that. And if that's what keeps you anchored at going forward and being motivated to do what you do, then that's where it starts. You'll love the process of going through figuring that out. And I, I would say that's probably what Seth is trying to say here is that once you've gotten clear on what's the impact you want to do, then you can find yourself falling. Like an easy example is looking at a gym routine, right? So if I want to be healthy and live long and I'm reminded of that every time I'm about to step into the gym saying, wow, look at me making that decision out of love because I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to get strong, then of course, lifting weights, if you just say like, I'm going to go lift weights, 
is not the most exciting, motivating process. It's much easier to fall in love with watching TV, but that's not what's going to make you get the goals and the impact that you want within yourself or whatever it is, the business you run, the impact you want to do for the client and the world. And so that would be my two cents about it. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's a very important thing. Just remembering your why behind everything that you that you do is so important and it plays into all aspects of life into selling into your relationships into you know whatever business you're trying to make it all comes down to you know that why that or like you said that impact what's the impact that you want to make um jason i want to be conscious of our time so i just have a few more questions for you uh first of all uh so you've been running the podcast now for i believe about a year and you've had some amazing guests on it now i've been running my podcast for what are we now eight nine months uh as well so i've been taking this time also to reflect back on like my earlier episodes and like my interview style and like my questioning so i'm curious you probably have had a similar growth experience in that time too so how what would you say has been the biggest change from like episode one to like where you are right now i've never been asked that that's a very interesting question i think you know, your confidence just goes up with repetition, right? So I feel like I can be, it's so funny. It's like when you first start, you you know, you're going to look out for resources externally about how to do this right. And your intention is almost like, don't mess this up, right? Like you don't want to mess this up in the first episode. There's there's a bit of fear that just naturally comes to that because it's new and you need to adapt. And so I, I think I've been pretty lucky because even before running the podcast, I was doing interview series. Um, and, and I think that really helped get me prepared to be the host of the podcast. Matter of fact, is the reason I was selected to be the host of this podcast. And I think now I, I can jump into a conversation much more fluently. I can be more comfortable asking more confrontational type of question. And what I mean by that is I, at the beginning, it's almost like I'd always toss the easy questions to make sure that the podcast would be smooth. And I'd throw what I'd call softballs to the guest so that they would know I would feed them the answer I already want to hear. But now I'm actually being a little more adventurous in my episodes where I'm actually going to ask what's on my mind and what I think is on the mind of most people listening. And I trust my guests more. I trust my guests that if I do ask them a question, that they're going to come up with the answer. And I think that trust comes uh, with practice. So for one, I start trusting myself more that I could you know, navigate the podcast as necessary. But then I also realized that, hey, these people have either written books, it's their life material, they have to figure out these tough questions. So let me ask them. And I think that brings more value to the people. And so if anybody is trying to get that fast track is don't be afraid to ask the tough questions, because I think that brings a juicy conversation. A hundred, hundred, hundred percent. That is something I resonate with so much. Like, like you said, in the early days, regardless and all my episodes my the the way i see it, the guest is the star of the show so i'm trying to em, get, per, bring you in the best light as possible but like you correctly said i want to challenge you as well i want to make you think and there's obviously there's a way to do it it's not you know you can challenge someone without being super like confrontational and stuff but like you said the confidence to do that i think ha- has grown with time as well and being willing to ask that because i can guarantee and i think you can attest to this when you've asked those challenging questions, either sometimes people haven't thought of those answers, and two, it always brings more value and it's more a much juicier conversation, like you said. And for my last two questions, Jason, these are questions I ask all my guests. So first of all, and this is a more recent one that I've added, but I think is really relevant and a lot of people seem to like it, is when you look back over the last, you know, the last few years, you know, speaking at AFES, doing the podcast, you, you know, your all sales and marketing experience. And even impersonally, what would you say either is your proudest moment or what are you most proud of? Interesting question again. Um, I think is my my consistent way of taking massive action. Like no matter what I do with the jobs I take, like I'm usually always taking a massive, rapid, powerful action. And I think in a world that often we feel paralyzed by a lot of decisions and a lot of choices, I have this ability where I can really sift through a lot of the crap and I can realize that I can take a shot at 80% of certainty and that makes you have so much progress in the process. And so a lot of times it's like we get so paralyzed by making the perfect choice 
when sometimes it's the 80% shot that you do take, which brings you to a place you would have never been if you would have hesitated for so long. And so when I reflect back on all the things that have happened in the last, you know, call it five, 10 years, is like I decided to apply to a job at Mindvalley on the, on the drop of a hat while I was at a cafe after visiting their office. And that just led to amazing, amazing pivot in my life. And often these intuitive hunches that I just take a radical action on just make me discover a new part of myself or take me on a new journey that I never would have realized if I would have tried to sit down and weigh all the options and just not move on it. So I think a lot of us get paralyzed in that. So I think I'm, if you think about a proud moment, um, I'm actually just saying this proud trait within myself that repeatedly comes up uh, is something that I would like to highlight. Yeah, no, I think, and that's amazing because I, that's something I resonate with a lot is because in the past, like you said, I've also been paralyzed by the fear of what if this doesn't work out and I've changed my mindset to become just act. If you feel like you said, if at least, like you said, if it's 80% there, chances are it's going to, well, no matter what happens, I think act and deal with the consequences after because number one, it keeps pushing you out of your comfort zone and you're constantly going to be growing. If it doesn't work out, that's a huge lesson you learn. If it does like it has in your case, seven years of Mind Valley. I think that's a big win. And for my last question, Jason, is what is the message that you'd like everyone to take home with them today? Yeah. Sell from a place of love. When you do that, you're going to actually find yourself feeling better, being more abundant, making the world a better place, selling the people that are going to be calling you back, saying, thank you for selling to me. And it just makes you live a life without needing to look over your shoulder. So Go through the process of learning to sell with love. When you do that, it's not only going to be best for your sales job, but you're going to be able to get that career you want, get the promotion you want, be better at finding a partner if that's what you're looking for, better at keeping the partner you have because that's just as important in the sales process. But uh, as the Beatles says, all you need is love. And if you put it in the sales (laughs) process to start making a big difference. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a beautiful message, Jason. And it perfectly wraps up, you know, the conversation from today and the message that you want to give to everyone, which is to sell with love and how that plays into all areas of life, from career to personal relationships. Every interaction you do with a person at the end of the day is some type of sale, even if it's just negotiating where to go out for lunch. (laughs) That could also be looked at as a sale too. Uh, Jason, I wanted to say thank you so much for your time today. I've absolutely love this conversation i've learned so much from you from a selling perspective and just from your podcasting and everything in between i think anyone listening to this can really get a lot of value from it so thank you so much for your time i really really appreciate it it was my pleasure thank you for having me thanks and to everyone guys thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it and as always hope it helps peace